Coming to you from the studios at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., I am Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations that we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces, and you are listening in. And this month, we welcome a very special guest, legendary civil rights activist, Ruby Sales. Ruby is joining us on Freedom Road to dive deep today on the topic of blackness and history. (laughs) since this is now Black History Month. Now, we'd love to hear from you to see what you think. So just tweet me at Lisa S. Harper or tweet to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks. We are growing every single month. It's exciting to see the audience growing. And and make sure that you let us know what you think, okay? Because we actually really do like the feedback. So, Ruby, Auntie Ruby... I actually want to call you auntie, and that's what I call you, so I'm going to call you. Is that okay? That's wonderful. Okay. (laughs) Now, it's funny because most people call you Mama Ruby, and that is actually very apropos because in many ways you're kind of the mother of maybe even like grandmother of the movement at this point, of the movement that is riding in our streets right now. But I want to say thank you for letting me call you auntie. Um, For those who don't know, Auntie Ruby and my mom knew each other back in SNCC, which is why I get that special privilege. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Absolutely. So they were sisters in the movement, and that makes me a niece. So yay. Absolutely. (laughs) And so you were back there in 1966 with my mom in Atlanta, right? Yes. At a training that that you both went to that summer. And, And so... I was introduced to you during my time organizing white and multi-ethnic churches to stand in solidarity with the Ferguson movement. Yes. And that's what was so incredible. Actually, I told you then that my mom was in SNCC, and I remember you asking me, what's her name? (laughs) I I was like, oh, goodness, okay. So I answered, I said, "Um, Sherry, you know, or Sharon. Her name is Sharon Lawrence, but back then she would have been known as Sherry. And you were like, Sherry, Sherry. Oh, my God. You know, and so from that point on, I think you guys connected. And yes, I want to just say thank you so much for reconnecting with my mom, because I think there's a way that it brought back for her all of the stuff that she had held in her being and passed on to us, but had not had an opportunity to live out in the same way that she did back then. So being connected with you has been, I think, a really empowering being reconnected has been empowering for her. Well, it's been really good being connected with her and also connected with you because it represents a continuum. And it is in that continuum that we have hope and that we recognize that when we get to the riverside, the struggle is not over, that it continues. Wow. Wow. So what moved you to join SNCC? I was thinking about that question today, Mm -hmm. and I realized that many hands pushed me to the front door of SNCC. Okay. Beginning in Columbus, Georgia, my parents, 
my mother, who was so radical, who, if she went downtown and was disrespected in a, in a department store, she would really challenge. And we, we didn't want to go downtown mm-hmm. with her because we knew that if someone said something wrong with her, to her, it was on. Oh, no. <laughs> my father was a chaplain in the Army, and uh-huh. when, when people tried to reduce him to being a janitor— he would go to the generals around everybody's back and go to the generals and challenge it and refuse to sweep floors when he was a chaplain. So I have that spirit wow. of resistance in my family. Yeah. In addition to that, I came from a community that had developed a counterculture of education that was a long train running towards excellence. And it was a counterculture that rooted itself in what Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot called Southern Good Schools. And I was a part of that counterculture. So I went to a very good school that was a training ground for citizenship, was a training ground for creativity, was a training ground to develop people who could articulate the conditions of our society, but not only the conditions, but also the vision inherent in the Declaration of Independence. Wow. And so I was very much a part of that counterculture. What, what year were you there? I was, no, this is throughout Four my years. whole education. Really? From first to high school. And, and I graduated it, in 63. And was, okay, and was it an all-black school or was all it All black. All of the teachers were black. It was during segregation. How about and, that? And our high school had the highest SAT scores in the state of Georgia. As a matter of fact, my brother's class in 1968, his SAT scores were so high that he got scholarships from around the country. And, and it, we were just an excellent school. Wow. And, and, and so that we did not, our teachers, I was thinking about this also this morning. Yeah, yeah. Our teachers taught us never to be second class anything. Mm. I was a first class student, first class cheerleader, first class Bible study teacher, first class editor of the newspaper. They taught us to aim for the stars. And and I, I was thinking That's deep. Why they never told us that we needed to lower our expectations because we were black. And I was shocked when I went out in the world and realized that the world had such low expectations of me as a black person. Mm. By the time I met that reality, I had been firmly shaped in a sense of who I am in the world and a sense of my teachers. To me, they were glorious. They were magnificent. They were all powerful. And I didn't want to grow up and be Marilyn Monroe. I didn't want to grow up to be a white woman. I wanted to grow up to be a black woman like Dora Jackson, who went to my church. I idolized those black women because Mm -hmm. they were the, the backbone of that counterculture, and they had the exquisite talent of taking the scraps from white tables and making something beautiful out of it. And they taught me that even in the midst of the most brutal oppression, there could be grace and beauty. That was in the South. That was in the South in the 50s, in the 40s In the 50s. I was born in the 40s. Yeah. So I I went to school in the 50s and the 60s. So that was... Wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm still still wrapping my mind around this. Yes. So this was in the South at the same time as Emmett Till. 
Emmett Till was lynched in the but mm-hmm. but that, that was white culture lynching Emmett Till. Right, right, but right. But you have to understand that we lived in a segregated society. Right. And as, as Vanessa Silla Walker says, uh, who's a professor at Emory, second class books didn't mean that we had second class minds. Woo! You have to separate that reality Snap. from our potentialities as students. And we were encouraged to reach our highest potential mm. as students. And if you study the Carver High Schools that darted the Southern landscape, the Booger T. Washington High Schools, the Price High Schools, these were excellent high schools. Wow. My brother was a National Merit Scholar. In this class of 1968, there were nine National Merit Scholars in a class of less than 250 students. I'm sorry. The I'm counterculture. I'm a little speechless because seriously, the the it defies the pathology of the South. It does. Yes, and what I'm saying, if you look at the quote unquote successful black folk between the years of 1940 to 1970, they 75% of them came from the South. The North was building exceptional Negroes, and the South was upbuilding a people. And that's a whole different place to start that narrative. Oh, my goodness. And we were not extrapolated out of our communities Uh and sent to white schools so that we became strangers at our parents' tables. So we were very much seeing ourselves as part of a community project that began immediately after enslavement during uh, uh, during emancipation, where black men met in Selma, Alabama, which later would become a battleground for human and civil rights, where they pledged their utmost endeavors to educate the youth for the advancement of the race and for the preservation of our rights and liberties. And that became the Southern Project. It's really something because I think that what we as Northerners, and I grew up in Philly, and was born in New York City and then raised in New Jersey. So I'm very much a northern girl, although my grandmother emigrated from South Carolina to Philadelphia. And what we grew up thinking of is we thought of the South as this place where, well, it is true, where black souls were subjugated. But what we didn't, what we weren't told was the power of the struggle and how, how far above the pushing down black folks rose in the South. I mean, the reality is, right, that the freedom movement for black people was came from the South. Came out of the South. Came and, from the and, South, and, yes. And, and the dissonance between the realization that there were historically black colleges in the South and the mis- and not even making a connection between those colleges and producing a black Southern, black bourgeoisie. Who do, who do people think that these colleges were producing? <laughs> there were 111 historically black colleges. They were producing a strong black bourgeoisie that gave rise to Julian Bond, that gave rise to Bernice Johnson Regan, that gave rise to Bernard Lafayette, that gave rise to Ruby Zuri Smith, that gave rise even to a Ruby Sales. Wow. Wow. You are now a celebrated theologian. I want to know, how did your faith enter the picture? Was, did, did you carry your faith into the movement, or what did your faith come? Was it born out of your experience in the movement, or was it something that grew afterwards? Well, I, I want to just define the elements of Black Southern faith. Yeah, yeah. It was a faith rooted in God, and that, that God would have the final word in human history. But in, in addition to that, Mm -hmm. Our faith was rooted in pragmatic optimism, 
where we were able to look at life for what it was, segregation mm -hmm. for what it was, mm -hmm. but to be optimistic in our power to change. And that this was the guiding theology and philosophy that moved forward the black project in the South for more than 100 years. And black folk kept tilling generations for the day of the Jubilee, when there was no mm -hmm. evidence that that day would come. But they had the faith, and they kept on tilling generations. Margaret Walker came out of that, gener that field. Nikki Giovanni came out of that field. You wow. just, if you look at who's who, Tony Morrison family migrated from the South. When you look at the, May Miller Sullivan came out of the South. Langston Hughes, well, he came out of Ohio, but he had deep roots in his, his Yes. And so when you look at James Weldon Johnson out of Tallahassee, Florida, and so you just began to understand the real impact, the, the optimism, because we were not taught to be broken winged birds. We were taught to fly high, mm. to fly above the oppression. And the, they were wow. spiritual geniuses. They were able to create a counterculture where we didn't even realize that the world hated us. Oh. I didn't understand any of that until my first demonstration when I realized that there were white people in the world who hated me enough to want to kill me. What was that first demonstration? In Montgomery when I was a student at Tuskegee. And um, the dean, can you? This is what I mean about the community project. Yeah, yeah. The dean of the of students, Dean Bertrand Phillips, organized along with the president of the student body, Gwendolyn Patton, a demonstration of busloads of students from Tuskegee to go down to the Capitol in Montgomery wow. to protest what had happened at Elma Pettus Bridge in Savannah, in Selma. Can really? you imagine the dean? So that was the, the, and then, so I became involved in that movement. I became radicalized, I would say. Yeah. And began to shape, find the language to put into words that which I had rebelled against as a child when I would go and sit on the front of the bus, ring the bell, and run. So your faith itself was shaped in and through and by the struggle. No, my faith existed. I couldn't have had a, been in the struggle. My faith was shaped in that counterculture mm. of pragmatic optimism where we never saw black adults give up. The fact that they would create a counterculture of education and inspire us to excellence Mm -hmm. When there was no evidence that we would be able to use our craft. It was all in order to it do that. It was faith. It took faith. It yes. took faith and hope. Oof. Okay. All right. So what was it like? What was it like for you to be a part of the movement at that time? I mean, you're what you're talking about. You're really, when you talk about going down to Montgomery and protesting because of what happened on Edmund Pettus Bridge, and in many ways you're talking about the climax, the time of the climax of the civil rights struggle, the struggle civil rights movement as we know it today, the Southern Freedom Movement. So what was it like to be a part of that, to even enter the movement at that time? Well, I think it was to continue to be what I'd always been, a mm. part of a community. Mm. It was not a new experience for me. Mm. What was a new experience was a face-to-face -face confrontation with white violence and the understanding of the real brutality 
the real meaning and how to talk about systemic white supremacy. That's what was new for me. The language was new. But the community love, seeing adults sacrifice and giving us a freedom house and feeding us, that was par for the course. That was the community. That was Southern black hospitality. Mm. So I was not shocked by that. I was really expecting that. Wow. That's actually one of the things that that you we've talked about a couple of times over the years. And especially in the last year, you talked with me about the fact that when you look around at the movement today, one of the things that grieves you is the reality that community is missing. There's people are doing actions, but out disconnected from each other, not really being in deep community. So the trust isn't there. The depth of the trust is that is that where that the dismemory. Well, there's this memory, because community, don't forget now, I described what? An intergenerational connection. Yeah. Older folks who were providing us with shelter and with protection. That's right. If we got in trouble, they would come over to the Freedom House to make sure that we were all right. When white people surrounded the Freedom House one night and we managed to escape, We ran to Mr. Jackson's house, who was in his 70s, who came over to make sure that they had left. And so we were not a community fighting against ourselves. We were not othering ourselves. We were not saying that that we had to slay the fathers and the mothers in order to gain power. It would never have occurred to us to ask Mrs. Jackson to get out of the way. Because we were all standing together, they were not other. They were our elders, whom we had been t- whom we had been taught to deeply respect. And it grieves me, the way in which younger black people have bought into a white supremacist othering, where they are disconnected from the continuity of their elders. Without elders and remnants, the vision is incomplete. And so that I worry today Mm -hmm. as I hear young people saying, you see, that's Oedipal. That's inherent in white supremacy. White young folk have to say their fathers who've engaged in corrupt power in order to create something better. We don't have to do that because our fathers didn't have the corrupt power. So what we Mm -hmm. have to do is to build on what our fathers and mothers created and take it a little bit further. That's what they wanted us to take the struggle just a little bit further. We were not trying to slay each other. So that, 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 wow. that intergenerational disconnect is inherent in dismemory, fragmentation, and a kind of, even though you think you're radical, you see the world through empire lens and you other each other, and that's dangerous. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Greenville University and Freedom Road LLC are excited to welcome you to join us for the Justice Ministry Program. The courses in this program are facilitated by myself, Lisa Sharon Harper, in collaboration with Dr. Ben Wayman at Greenville University as we guide participants through pilgrimages that bring to life today's most pressing matters. If you are a senior level college student or a pastor, a justice minister, a worship leader, a nonprofit leader, 
leader, a justice advocate, a social worker, or a grad student in theology or the church, these courses are for you. The dream for this program is to help people in the church and in society to work towards justice in a more just world more effectively. But we can't do that until we understand the connections between the policy choices we're making right now and the history that came before. So this program will build up the capacity of faith leaders and communities to build that more just world. For more information about the Justice Ministry Certificate at Greenville University, email us at info at freedomroad.us. Auntie Ruby, what does it mean to be black? Well, to be black is one aspect of my identity because I don't want to just reduce myself to being black. A culture of whiteness reduces all of us to one identity, which is our skin. Mm -hmm. And because it just says that we are only what our color is, then it makes us vote against our other identities. It makes us erase our gender. It makes us erase our sexuality. It makes us erase our class. It makes us erase everything but our skin. Mm -hmm. But to be African, to be black, is not enough for me. Mm -hmm. I have to say that I'm an African-American because to be black is not a monolith. While we all share the universal marks of blackness in a white supremacist culture, how that has come to us and how we have experienced it differs according to our ethnicities. What do you mean by universal marks of blackness in a white supremacist culture? That to be black is to carry a stigma, is to be cursed, is to be systemically cursed, is to be set aside, is to be banished. And um, so we carry the marks of that banishment. We carry the marks of that no matter where we are, if we're in Africa, if we're in Europe, if we're in this country. That's the universal stigma of blackness. But mm-hmm. how I have experience that blackness also has a particular construct, Mm -hmm. and that has to do with my southerness. It is not correct to think that a a Nigerian immigrant has the same exact experience that I have being a descendant from an enslaved community in the South. Mm -hmm. So it's the ethnicity of African-Americanness. Yes, that, that we have to not only talk about our universal skin, and what that means historically in a white supremacist culture. Mm -hmm. But we have to also tell our own unique ethnic stories. Yeah. And geographic. So when you, it's not even just African-American, it's it's Southern African-Americans. It's Southern African-Americans. So what does it mean to be a black woman then? It means to be a black woman is to be, in in one sense, one of the most powerful forces in human history. (sighs) And on the other hand, if you look at us through the Mm -hmm. eyes of the system, it means being four loops on the center of power. But Mm. to be black, to be a black woman, calls up, in my mind, Mary Church Terrell, when she went to South Carolina in the 1890s, with the rise of the reign of terror of Jim Crow 
in Southern Apartheid. And she stood on that stage that night talking to black women, and she asked a fundamental question. Can you carry your weight in the heat of the day? And to be a black woman, those women went crazy. And wow. they yelled, yes, we can carry our weight in the heat of the day. To be a black woman is to say, yes, I not only can I carry it, but I will carry it in the heat of the day. What and is the not context? only will I, not, will I carry it for myself, but I will create generations who will be able to carry it when I can no longer carry it. And so what is the context? Because that, that means, it means something for a crowd of black women to cheer at that. But they had an image in their mind. What was the weight they were carrying? It was the weight it of the It was the cotton? rise of Jim Crow. The it was, of no, the... It, was, it was the brutality of lynching. It was the brutality of the, of the redemptive South who reinstituted the plantation system, who reinstituted enslavement under the guise of the law in, in southern sites of economic terror. It was in the 1890s with the convict leasing system. Yeah. All Everywhere black women, people look, we were pushed up, as Howard Thurman says, up against a systemic wall. Can you carry your weight? Can you carry your weight? In the heat of the in day. In the heat of the day. And what I would say to young people, Black girls today, you come from a group of women, generations of black women, who could carry their weight in the heat of the day. It is because they carried their weight that we exist today. Mm. What does it mean to be an African-American Southern woman who carries her weight in the heat of the day in today's intersectional struggle for black freedom. What do you mean by intersection? Because when you say that, it reminds me, I know what people are trying to say, mm -hmm. but it still reminds me of split identities ah. rather than whole identities. Well, what I mean is that I actually mean the whole identity. I mean that place, in that place, in the struggle for black freedom, where it is the coming together of the identity that is ethnicity and gender and sexual orientation and geographical location and social status. What does it mean? What it is means it? the yeah. struggle to be whole. Oh. The struggle not to be a fragmented person that only moves in the world from one or two identities. It means to be able to move to a higher level of consciousness where I'm able to integrate all of my identities into one hole called ruby nail cells. So I can hear all of the sounds of my name, whether it's a, name, a, a sound of my name as a public theologian, as an Asian black, as an elder, all of the ways in which I exist in the world. That is what freedom is, the ability mm -hmm. to touch all of ourselves and put them together and to be whole in a society that tells us that we must be small and fragmented. From the first time we met, I've been really impressed with how deeply you carry and consciously live out the principles of the movement. I remember on that very first phone call, actually, I might have called you reverend or asked you, should I call you reverend or doctor? Or And you said, just call me. In fact, you, you actually chided me and said, don't call me that. Just call me Ruby. And I didn't understand that because in the world that I work in and run in, 
you know, people are going to school to get that doctor, to get that, or going and going back to get, just to get the reverend in front of their name. And yet you have both and you don't use them. You refuse to use them. And it, and you explained that that is a principle that came out of the movement. It's a value of the movement. And then there's also the, the question of the community and working in community. So what did these values look like to live out at that time? Um, back in the day, per se. And what were some of the other core values that we need to understand today in order to be able to carry it forward? First of all, a movement is to imagine a new beloved community. Mm -hmm. And in a beloved community, we come to each other as sisters and brothers and as kinfolk and not as Reverend Dr. This or Reverend Dr. That. So love is at the center. Yes, and, and when people insist on titles... They're really recreating the hierarchy that they say they're, they're standing over and against. Mm. And they use their titles, as Matthew points out in one of the scriptures, where he says that people strut with their academic gowns and they want the best seats in the house. Wow. People with their titles want the best seats in the house. And they define themselves not in terms of being a child of God, but to be stamped by the empire. And that is problematic because if you start from that assumption that titles make us who we are, it, if you start with that transcendental understanding that we are our titles, then the world that you create will be a world of elites. There will be no difference in your world. So faith means the ability to stand stripped naked of one's titles in the world and believe that you matter and believe that you're somebody because you're a child of God. That reminds me. And that's me. what the movement was about. Because mm. the, the world said that black Southerners, that we were nobody. Black folk had defied that notion of being nobody all the way back to enslavement when they declared, I've got a right, you've got a right. I've got a right to the tree of life. The yeah. tree of life was democracy and creation. Can you imagine what that meant for an enslaved community that had been legally reduced to property to wow. declare that they too had a right to the tree of life? Their worship song was a protest song. Yes, yes. absolutely. And not only a protest song, but the definition. It wasn't just that they were protesting. But they were reaffirming yes. their humanities. Yes. This all reminds me of, of two current movements, actually, that are working in the world right now. I mean, in the, in the beginnings of the Black Lives Matter movement, or the call against respectability politics, politics and the call to actually put forward those who are who live and have been pushed to the margins was actually a call to recognize the inherent community in in the lowest in those I, I the society with that. The I disagree with that analysis. Oh, okay. Because first of all, that respectability was to denounce the contributions of the black bourgeoisie. It was to put and there was a difference between black women and black men insisting on being respected than to say that they were just wanting to be white. Mm. I disagree with that. What I totally disagree mm. with that. Mm -hmm. That what when black women insisted on being Mrs. and not being called Mammy or not being called Susan, that had nothing to do with being 
wanting to be respectability. That had to do with demanding that I shall be as respected by you as you respect your wife. You will not reduce me to some object called Suki or Mammy. And so it was a struggle to be called by the name that you wanted to be called by and to reduce the history of black bourgeois struggles of middle-class black people to some trite expression of respectability is to hate yourselves and to not know your history. Because even in the South during SNCC, who do you think paid our bill to get out of jail? Delta Sigma Theta. Who do you think created bookmobiles during the South when black kids couldn't go into the libraries? Delta Sigma Theta. Wow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you could you could just do like three snaps in a circle right there. Boom. That's right. Boom. Boom. And boom. so we need, and and so that kind of That's disconnection. Who do you think had the resources? To give out scholarships. Who do you think gave me my scholarship to Tuskegee? AKAs. Mm. Mm-hmm. Who do you think got black kids through college? Who do you think fed black people? The professional, those who actually had the money to pay for the movement, to actually That's make it absolutely work, make it right. happen. We had nothing. So it wasn't about so the 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 mantra right now or not mantra but the common thought around respectability politics is, is that an ignorance of history is an ignorance it's to of understand history. that when black women insisted on being called miss Mrs that we were one generation from being enslaved and being property of white men and so to insist to be called miss was to establish that we did not belong to white men Wow. That so, we would decide who, if anybody, we would decide who who we were connected to. So the context matters. The context matters. This is one generation removed from slavery, enslavement where black women didn't even have control of our bodies. And to say that I'm Mrs. says that you don't have a right to come into my slave cabin and have sex with me, and I, I'm unprotected. Black women wanted to be called Mrs. not to flaunt respectability because they desired to be protected. And they didn't just walk in their Sunday best so that they could be respectable. No, they walked in their Sunday best to create a distance between being perceived as a whore and having something surround them that 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 made them be unassailable and untouchable because they knew what was going on in the cabins at night they were they were perceived as whores not only in the cabinets but also in the pervasive literature mm. they was they were even, but they were being raped they were being raped and we were considered whores mammies and tragic mulattoes mm. and so when black women presented ourselves in a society that said first of all that we were whores and we presented ourselves in a certain way that was saying to, to that it was really saying, get away. It was putting guardrails around us. That we would not be who you, we would not be your mammies, mm-hmm. that we would not be your whores, and we wouldn't be your tragic balladas. That we would define, as Paula Giddings says, when and how we entered in the world. And that kind of ignorance is very destructive because it takes black women's desire to have some control over our physical and social geography and to be regarded like other women as some kind of bent towards respectability, to reduce it, to trivialize it like that, Mm -hmm. is to be absolutely ignorant. 
Yes. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I feel like, honestly, I feel like I just, I just went to school. I just went to school. I think we all just went to school. And if you're a black man, you've got to understand that you're a black man. You've just come out of a, a 400 a years of enslavement where you've been treated like a dog, where you haven't been able to have the, the respect of your, your marriage, where they call you Jim and boy. Yeah. And what is the significance? One generation out of enslavement for stand up and say, I am a man, call me mister. Don't, don't call me Jim. And to walk in the Sunday best, because in that space... Because we had been reduced to wearing rags. Yes. Fashion was was not about respectability. It was about the reaffirmation of that we had a right to present ourselves in the world the way we desired to be. And mm-hmm. fashion was a, a political statement of resistance of a people who refused to wear rags, who refused to be downtrodden, who said that I can be in the world in a beautiful and graceful way, that I will not be have a poverty of spirit and a poverty of presentation. My mind is literally racing right now. I mean, I have all kinds of thoughts going through. I think one of the one of the thoughts is I'm trying to think, think because it feels like both eras really in many ways were talking about the same thing. They were doing the same thing. That in in your era, in your context, in my mom's era, in my mom's context, you were one generation away from slavery, two generations at most away from slavery. My grandmother was raised by the last enslaved person in our family, right? So that's that's deep. She knew her. She knew her and heard her stories. And so, but I didn't. I didn't have that. And the people who were on the line are one generation even removed from me in Ferguson. They're, they're the millennials. And so when they're thinking about respectability, they're thinking about it in terms of really they're thinking about it in terms of the, the ghettoization that happened after the civil rights movement. Well, I, I disagree with some of that also, because okay. if you look at the Southern Freedom Movement and the Northern Freedom Movements and see the adornment, the natural hair, the African garb. Mm -hmm. Fashion has always been a political statement in a society where the criminalization of black fashion has always existed. Mm -hmm. Look at the criminalization of black boys who wear hoods. Right. Look at the whole notion of black women can't wear natural hair to jobs. If you resist that and contest that, is that respectability or is that an assertion of your right to define how and when and how you're into the world? That's a, that's a good question. <laughs> and, I, and I think that's the danger of putting black kids in white schools because uh-huh. there, there is not that there are no elders to decode the meaning of the journey mm-hmm. and to tell you what the symbols and the language means. And so you, you're then subjected to white teachers who for the most part exist to create this memory. And let me just tell you that that, when you were talking earlier, part of the reason for my wow response to your story of the empowerment of your school in the South is that I've heard my mother's stories of her experience of being disempowered in her schools in the North, in in South Philly. Now, she had many really good teachers, so I don't at all want to disparage her really great teachers. But I've also heard stories, though, 
of a white teacher who was in a classroom and taught all these black kids and and really didn't believe they were going to go anywhere. So didn't right. really teach, you know, didn't didn't train them to lead the world instead more controlled them in space for a certain amount of time, right. offering a few nuggets of, of interesting information every once in a while. But this is how profound the dissonance is. Now, you knew that we went to segregated schools. Yes. So you knew that our teachers were black. Mm-hmm. So the next question would have been, what, what were black teachers doing with black students who lived in the same neighborhood that they knew where they knew their parents? Mm-hmm. So they were not segregated. In other words, they didn't go live outside of the neighborhood. No, we lived all together. Right. Where else was there to live but right. in the black community? Because nobody let you go anywhere else. You couldn't live in a white community. Mm-hmm. You were all living together. Doctors, lawyers, teachers, maids, janitors. We all lived next door to each other. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that in the North, that was the case for my mom, too. But yet at the same time, she had a white teacher. And that was different because teachers are very important in shaping your level of consciousness and in your expectations of who you are and what you can achieve in the world. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones who make you know that it's not you, Mm. that there's nothing wrong with you, that the problem is with the system and not with you. And so I guess part of me is just wondering if in the northern system, if there was a way that the way that the schools were set up, why was there a white teacher in her school, I want to know? Why? It was a neocolonial model. There you go. It was, That's it. In the same way that colonialism infected schools in China, all over the world, wherever colonialism existed, that was the problem with India, is that you, you then create a black bourgeoisie who've been trained in white institutions whose project becomes the imperial project rather than the project mm-hmm. of their people. Oh, Wow. And and we could not afford that in the South. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that we were any special people, but our mandates were different, and our circumstances demanded a different kind of response. And we didn't have the illusion of freedom. And so that we knew that if we were going to stay alive, we had to create the ways in which we could do that. We didn't have the illusion of integration. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast, and around the globe. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment, we find ourselves in full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. What do you think of reparation? Uh, what do you mean by reparations? I, I, 
It's the reparations that black people need to have. Yes. It's more than a material reparations. Okay. It's a spiritual reparation. So talk to us about because, that. Because, you know, if you say that money can repair the harm that has been done to black folk, then you ultimately argue that the highest form of human existence is materialism. And I argue that, yes, that we have been robbed of our material value, and we've worked free. But I argue that we also deserve something greater than materialism. Mm -hmm. We deserve the ability to have institutions that allow us to to repair the harm that's been done to us. Mm -hmm. And the reparations of the harm is more than money. It's to change a system, being willing to give up white supremacist power and to become a beloved community where we can all heal in right relation to each other. That's spiritual. So repair is at the center of it. Right. But and it's not just money. Right. It's not just money. So it's repairing spirit. Yes. What does it look like? What does it take? What will it take to repair our spirits? It will take people uh, having, as Martin Luther King says, a transformational values. Mm. Where we move from a thing society to a people-centered society, where we, in a capitalist society, where we contest the notion that the highest expression of human existence is material, that we recognize the value of our inner lives, and that we understand that who we are on the inside determines what we produce on the outside. Wow. And so that we must begin to have a move to a higher consciousness. That's what all religions do. Mm-hmm. They call on us to reach a higher consciousness so that we begin to weed out the empire consciousness in us and touch the God consciousness that have always been in us but repressed. I just had an amazing conversation over the last two days. I don't even know where, where I was in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just know I got on a plane and got somewhere and then we landed. Oh, Tampa, Tampa. We were in Tampa at the underground there. And we were talking about, we had a black Asian conversation. And so I co-led this dialogue with Kathy Kong, who you also, yes. also met. And we, when we broke up into our ethnic-specific groups, and in particular Asian-American, African-American, then the African-American group... I can't share all of what we talked about just because it was confidential, but I can say that one of the big things that rose out of it was this aha moment where we realized that we have struggled against white supremacy that told us that our only value was in the value that we contributed through our low-cost and no-cost labor to a capitalist system. So our— But I've just spent hours, uh, almost an hour, saying that that's a, a, a narrative that isn't true. I wouldn't be sitting here before you as Ruby Sells if that's what we had been told. I'm saying to you that you got to look at the fact that black life is not monolithic and that the South had to develop a theology in the sights of— on those sites of terror called plantation fields where they turned those sites that were intended to be sites of death to fields of theological transformation where they talked about and saw God. And so I'm saying to you that that, that you got to really begin to nuance. Mary McLeod Bethune didn't think that about herself. Anna J. Cooper did not think that about herself. Nanny Helen Burroughs said that we specialize 
and making the holy impossible possible. We specialize in making the holy impossible possible. Mm -hmm. That was in the 1890s, 1900s, with the Nanny Helen Burroughs School for Girls in Washington, D.C. Yeah. I think that what we were responding to is the white imagination of blackness and the reality that for those people of African descent who live within white spaces, we have struggled to attain full humanity, which doesn't happen in those spaces. It's not possible because their imagination is limited. It can only see us as what we are But why able would to their produce. imagination be your starting point to, to articulate and determine your humanity? That's the problem. That is the that, problem. That their imagination exactly. become your significant imagination. And I'm saying to you, that is the problem. Mm-hmm. I agree. I 100% agree. <laughs> I think, we're, yeah, I'm right there with you. I but think I, the thing is people people are not there yet. But like I want to people... say something about the white imagination that I think is yes. very important. Okay. Because what black folk provided in the South during the Southern Freedom Movement was a movement, it was a transcendental movement towards redemption mm-hmm. that relieved the impediments of white supremacy off not only of the backs of black folk, but also the backs of white Southerners, and provided a clearing straight to the the heart of democracy and to a beloved community. Mm -hmm. It said to white people, as much as black people, that we're not entrapped by our histories, that we are not entrapped in moral nihilism. Wow. That we can begin a new story with each other. And that is to say to white people that we see something good in you that the society has not told you exists. And so revolutionary love means the ability to see the good in people that they do not see in themselves and having the compassion and the faith to call it out in them. So that what black folk offered in our counter-theology was a theology of redemption Mm. that provided a pathway to becoming whole, not only for black folk, but for people of other ethnicities. See, I think that what we're experiencing even right here is, I think there are absolutely, I know, there are absolutely spaces that are so graced to have grown up and to grow up, HBCU schools being number one right now, right? Where where you you. People who have the grace to be able to go to an HBCU school right now get the experience that you got just organically, just being black in the South at the time you were because it was a segregated South. And so you had everybody together and and on, and the generations are pouring in. But the thing is, is that I am talking to you from the other side of the Great Migration. Yeah, but you didn't go to historically black school. No, you and I did Columbia, And I, I'm I saying went to Rutgers even, University even in today, Columbia. Historically, black schools, look what Morehouse is producing. Look what Spelman is producing. And and those young folk have a whole different vision of themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's called socialization process. And what I'm saying to you is that when you're integrated into a culture of whiteness, your optic becomes white. That's what I'm saying, too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm saying that, too. I'm saying that that's, I have had, and this this was the aha we had in Tampa, was that, we had a we had about thirty black people sitting in a circle, maybe twenty, twenty black people okay. sitting in a circle. And we had this moment where we realized 
that we've been told who we are by people who don't know us. And also because we don't know ourselves. And we, and yes. And I think, you know, people have varying degrees of understanding of the history. I have a, I know my history, but then there's a part that like, we didn't know people didn't know around that thing. We created the stoplight. That was us. Like, we actually were the people in, in Black Brazil. I was just down there. Mm-hmm. We are the ones who actually created the wheelbarrow. Ha! Huh? That was us. We did that. Like, we are the ones who created scales. I mean, actually, cre- the very first libraries in the world were in Africa. The first universities were in Africa, in Timbuktu. We don't know who we are. And so as a result, because we grew up in white space, the imagination of white people has shaped us and shaped our own imagination of ourselves. You, Lisa Sharon Harper, had the magnificence of your mother right there before you in all of her splendor. Yeah. And the question, and some of her friends, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. and also your Philadelphia history Mm -hmm. and who you've come from. And so the question is, why didn't you see that? Why, I'm you. not saying you. I, I, I know. Oh, yeah. I, I'm saying collectively. <laughs> I Well, that's a great question. Collectively, I can tell you part of it is that we moved from Philadelphia, a 60% black city, where my mom thrived and shined and was around her family and around her friends, down to Cape May, New Jersey. God love I bl- God bless Cape May. Harriet Tubman <laughs> lived in Cape May. I mean, really, truly, I gave, I have my I, I credit Cape May with my faith. I actually found Jesus in Cape May, New Jersey, and my youth group leader and all of those people were wonderful. But the reality is, we were the only black family in a fifteen mile radius. But did you have black relatives? Not in Cape May. No. Period. Yes. Did yes, you I come did. in contact with black adults? Yes. Yes. <laughs> but but we didn't. I mean, you know, I mean, it was the 80s. I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. No, no, no. I'm saying that we don't have to look to Timbuktu. Uh, what I'm saying is that we had within our own families, mm-hmm. if we had been taught to see them. And you're pointing the way now. Yes. You're pointing the, the way Our now. Our own family stories, what you've been doing, the yes. work that you've been doing with your family. Yes. Begins to shed light, mm-hmm. not only of who you are, but it, it puts you in a continuity so that your work makes sense. So that it's just not Lisa Sharon Harper doing her work, That's right? That's right. But that you're continuing a tradition. That's exactly right. As, and that's, it's funny because I really do believe that we understand our history better as we understand our family story. Because honestly, the other brand of history is written by the victor, written by the by the person who gets to write the books, but nobody gets to write our family story. We live it. And so it's more true, right? Yes. So we get to know ourselves better. So let me ask you this. So this is Black History Month. We're talking about family story and history. We want to lift up some of our sheroes and heroes um, whose lives contributed to the black flourishing in our world, to the flourishing. And in particular, I was going to say African-American, but I don't really mean that. I mean people of African descent in the world. Who is your historical mentor? Who does Ruby Black sales? women. Period. Period. <laughs> I was pruned and groomed by black women from Marion Pitts-Umstone to Willie Mae Sales Griffin to Ola Fries, my grandmother. Black women. It was not a cult of individuals. Ah! It was a cult of a community. Yes. So Even what... when I decided that I would begin to take the radical departure and explore my sexual... Who do you think 
guided me, black women. I was not a thrown away wow. piece of shit. I was somebody. Mm. And I'm just saying to you that it, that's the problem when we get into a cult of individuals. Yeah. We lose the collective spirit. Mm. And it was not just one black person. It was a black woman across the street who gave me $25 in a handkerchief when I went away to college. Wow. Who could barely pay her rent, but she was so proud of me, she gave $25 in a little knotted handkerchief. Wow. And you're mentioning of her now as even the thank you. Yes. Wow. And so I think that we've got, that's what I mean. We cannot afford to fragment our history. We must see ourselves as part of a community. That's why John Blassingame, when he wrote The Slave, he wrote, he called it the slave community. Mm -hmm. He talks about a community of enslaved people because it's important that we mix the I with the we and Mm -hmm. the we with the I. We cannot afford to see ourselves as rabid individuals. And even that practice of naming the one person or the two people. It's really the the way the official story does it. It extrapolates people outside of their communities, dehistoricize them as they did Jesus, because we don't recognize that Jesus was a Jew. So the empire story dehistoricizes Jesus, raises Jesus above its culture into something called Christ with Mm. no historical roots, as Reinhold Niebuhr would say. Wow. You know, one of the things that's been striking me most about Jesus, and not just Jesus, but Jesus's whole story and all those, all Jesus's family who's in that story he fits into, is the reality that all of them were brown, indigenous, colonized people. All of them. Every last one of them. And yet, we have a Bible that has been interpreted to us and has the orthodoxy has been handed down to us by Caesar, <laughs> by empire. By That's Constantine. By Constantine. Something is wrong. Something is deeply, deeply wrong with that equation. How can it be? How can it be? Ruby well, Sales? What, what is wrong about it, I agree with you. But what is even deeply troubling is the fact that black people have believed it. I know. Even though the Bible says that Jesus had woolly hair. Yes, and we and have skin believed like it. And we have worshipped a Jesus who looks like a hippie. Hello. He may as well have some flowers around his head. Right. Yes. And so the question is, what is the depth of our internalized oppression that we would erase the realities of who we are and that we would bow down and worship at the idolatry of whiteness where Jesus becomes white and it's assumed that God is also white? And does that explain then the patriarchy that is in the historic black church? I mean, does that because the patriarchy is really just a mechanism of white supremacy. And now I think I just stepped on something. Yes. Yes. But it's not patriarchy, because patriarchs are people who run the system. I would say internalized patriarchy. There's a difference between internalized patriarchy, just like there's a difference between internalized racism and being a racist. And so, yes, black men have internalized patriarchy, just like women have internalized patriarchy. That's right. That's right. I mean, women vote against their gender selves and vote on, on policies that eviscerate their gender rights, they have internalized patriarchy. So my point is, is that in many ways, all of us have internalized patriarchy, white Mm. patriarchy. How do we 
flesh it out? How do we how do we get clean? By making by first of all understanding and being honest that I might not have internalized white supremacy, but if I were to talk about what I've internalized, it would be classism. Mm. Because I grew up in a society that was a black bourgeoisie society, and no matter how much I've tried to cleanse myself of the taint, it comes out sometimes. Mm -hmm. And once I recognize my own defects, it makes my heart tender when I run across someone who has a defect, that I don't banish them, I don't give up on them. I recognize that they, like myself, are human, and that you can't live in a society and rise totally above the culture without bearing some of the marks of that society. And so that's what movement does. Movement tenderizes our hearts, and it's not self-righteous, it's not punitive. It's righteous, but it's not self-righteous. It doesn't demand perfection. It does, And it doesn't demand judgment like that. Mm. It doesn't say that if I have failure, if I have internalized classism, if I can recognize that in myself and really understand that, what then do I do when I meet someone who has internalized white supremacy? You realize we're, we're all just human. Yes. Struggling to be in the world together. Struggling to be whole against an empire that has required all of us to bow down and to worship. Because what empire patriarchs want to be is that they want to be earthly gods. Yes. They want to be responsible for our getting up, sitting down and our getting up. And they want to be responsible for life and death. And they want us to believe that they not, rather than God, are the, our benefactors. Idolatry, jealousy. They are jealous of the status of God. So when we internalize the patriarchy or this, the classism or the white supremacy, that internalization is actually in some ways a striving to be God. A it's, striving well, you hit to it control. In a way. Let me say it another way. Yeah, yeah. What it does is it, it eradicates the consciousness of God in all of us. Mm-hmm. It begins to minimize that consciousness and inculcates within us an empire consciousness. Mm-hmm. But don't forget, in the beginning was not the Word, was the Spirit of God. The Bible materializes it and says that in the beginning was the Word. But in the beginning was the consciousness of God. And out of the consciousness of God's consciousness, God made creation and endowed within us both spirit and made us physical. But God is the only entity or being that is Holy Spirit and Holy God. Hmm. What is the most valuable lesson? that you want to pass down to our listeners? Humility. That every time I go out in the world, I'm constantly screening myself. I'm constantly saying, God, rid me of the... I'm in, I go into the wilderness as Jesus did, and I ask God to rid me of the ego need mm. to be a celebrity the ego need for power. Let I, I'm constantly asking myself, if I accept this award, am I giving in 
to empire. Mm -hmm. And so I'm constantly, I'm saying to people, what I would say to everybody is that freedom is a constant struggle and requires a constant spiritual cleansing. Mm -hmm. Least if we do not do a detoxification of empire yearnings, that we wake up one morning and we become the very thing that we say has harmed us. Mm -hmm. So I believe that it's really important. It's very important to rid ourselves of the opiates and the seductions of the empire. Because if we don't do that, the movements that we create will become hierarchical and will recreate the very structures that we have struggled so hard to eliminate. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Auntie Ruby. Thank you, listeners. Freedom Road Podcast is recorded at the studios of the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult and coach and train and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for our updates, and we promise we will not flood your inbox. And we invite you to listen again next month. Every episode drops right around the first day of the month. So join us and join the conversation on Freedom Road. <laughs>